0: I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you uh, saw value in traversing the uh, treacherous inch. It's actually a little slick, but um, I just love that you're here and that some snow didn't keep you from the value of just being here. That's really, really encouraging to me. Um, If you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to turn to Matthew 19. Um, when When I was a kid... Uh, My my friends and I love to uh, play and build forts, and uh, I think I was about 11, and uh, my buddy Joel and my buddy Chris and my buddy Nathan and I decided we were going to build this log cabin, Lincoln log style, in our backyard. My dad had this massive pile of landscape timbers that did nothing but attract um roly polies and so we decided we put them to use and so um we, we just uh, you know dr- drug them into the backyard and we just started to, like linking logging them all the way up and then we put a roof on the top the only downside was that um th- that the roof was on the top so i guess that was we thought that was an upside that was pretty awesome that you had to climb up to the top to get in it and this was like our fortress like, we would fight bad guys, and, like, I mean, we'd retreat to base. And uh, so there was this one in particular. This was right around 4th of July, and uh, there was a kid who lived two houses down who was just this punk kid. Um, I mean, we were never punk kids, but this guy was just this punk kid. And so uh, he thought we were yelling at him and um, saying some stuff to him. So he, he's like, I'm going to get you. So he, he grabbed some uh, black cats. And he, um, he comes down the sidewalk, has the audacity, like I'm not friends with this guy, he has the audacity to walk through my garage, because it was my garage, you know, um, into the backyard and just starts lighting these black hats. We're in this fort, and he just starts throwing them in this fort, and then we're like, you know, hit the door. Well, it's like, you can't just run out, you gotta like, give me the stool, and you know, give me a boost, and... Uh, and so we're like, you know, freaking out. And uh, my, my friend almost lost his eye, you know, like, oh, that's the story we tell. Um, <laughs> and so, so then we're like, well, like we got to make this fort better. We got to make it stronger. We got to make it so no one can breach the cracks. And so we just find every blanket we can and we just cover it with blankets, right? Um, and, uh, and so now um, it's secure. Like, this is where we went. We could get in there. No one could see us because we're in the fort. And so, like, my mom would come out in the backyard and be like, time to eat. I'm just like, she she doesn't know I'm in here. She can't see me. Um, And we just thought it was, like, the safest, like, most secure, like, place to be. And um, except one day I was uh, going to climb up it, and uh, my buddy Chris was inside, and If you ever tried to climb uh, something that had blankets on it, it makes it a little challenging because the blankets tend to slide around, and so I'm up on top, and I can kind of see the top, I kind of can't see the top, and I'm just like, I can just get in, I'll be safe Well That was the problem is I didn't get in. Um, In fact, I slipped, and it was probably about seven feet tall, eight feet tall. I slipped, and I fell off of the fort and uh, landed face first on a stump. It's delightful. Busted my nose, like, bleeding everywhere. Had to go to the ER. Had to get surgery. Um, it, it failed me. The fort, the fortress. Um, one of the things that we're going to talk about this morning are what, what we run to to find, like, security. Uh, or I'll use the term uh, stronghold. Um, look at this definition of Stronghold. A fortified place, like the log cabin in my backyard, was a fortified place that we made it even better with putting blankets over it. Um, a place of security or survival, like that was where we went for security, um, is where we thought we could survive the worst of attacks, except slipping on a blanket on the top. Um, a place dominated by a, a particular group. Or marketed by a particular characteristic. So, like, even think like politically, like stronghold states. Like Missouri is like a Republican stronghold state. Illinois is a Democratic stronghold state. Think, thinking about this word "stronghold," it's 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 even used of of this military terminology where where they would go, this fortress, this protection. Um, but here's what's here's what's crazy. Look at how Paul Paul uses this word in Second Corinthians. Look at how he uses the word "stronghold." 2 Corinthians 10, he says this, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. So he uses the word negatively, where basically things that we believe we can cling to and be safe, and we can find life, and they're what's going to protect us. Paul says the gospel comes and destroys those strongholds that really can't hold the life-giving power that's needed. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised up against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to the obedience or to obey Christ. And so um, I want to look, I want to transition to this parable. And as we think about it, I kind of want to frame out this parable in light of of strongholds. Um, things in life, um, we're going to look at this rich young ruler and areas of his life where he believed that this is what would, would protect him. This is what would keep him safe. This is where life would be found. Um, and so let's, uh, let's pick it up in verse 18. I'm sorry, um, Matthew 18, let's pick it up at verse 16. And as we go through this passage, I want you to have the question in your mind is, what is it you're holding on to that could potentially be a stronghold um, that would really limit the gospel from changing you? Um, verse uh, verse 16. Matthew 19, sorry. wrong one. I'm on the wrong chapter. Matthew 19, verse 16 says, Behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. Now, so I, I want to think for a second about strongholds. We're talking about transformation. And w- what are some things in our life that would actually hinder God from changing our hearts? Really, areas where we're clinging, we're believing this is what can give me life, um, where, where the gospel would say, no, that's not really where it's at. For this guy, well, I think it's the area of man centered faith, right? So if you look at, if you look at what he says, he asks a question that probably most of us have faced before, right? Have you ever talked to somebody, had a spiritual conversation with somebody, um, about heaven? Um, it's the idea of what, what good do I have to do? Right? Like, um, what is it I need to do so that in the end I gain heaven? Now, um, like middle of last year, uh, ABC News did a poll in the United States, and of all the people they polled, 83% said they were Christians. So, 80, uh, the, the polls showed that 83% of the, of the U.S. claims that they're Christians. Um, probably not quite that high. Um, depending upon how you define the term, depending upon how you think through that. Um, But we all know this, right? Like that the majority of people believe that heaven is really just open, right? For any and all um, who essentially live a good life. That's That's what this guy's asking. What good deed must I do to have eternal life? So what's the problem with this question? How how's he defining good? Right, like like what what's good enough? Like, is it this good? Is it that good? Like, um, and Jesus, like any good teacher, what does he do? He answers a question with a question. I had this teacher in high school, drove me nuts. His name was Mr. Autry. He was the most awesome, but the most difficult teacher. And every question I asked him um, in this chemistry class, he always responded with, "You tell me. What do you think?" Like guess that's what I asked. I asked you to give me the answer or give me a clue or Jesus answers the question or well, the question he says this why do you ask me what is good there is only one who is good he's like well he's like why do you ask this question about what is good so he's perplexed by this response of this guy because essentially what he's saying is that like who are we who are we how are we defining good and who are we comparing ourselves with right. Jesus is like, there's only one who is good. Um, Paul even writes in Romans 3 that no one's good. Nobody's good. Not one. And, but who, who's the one that's good? Um, we talked last week about comparison. We all think through, like, we, we compare ourselves with people. We compare, we value, we oftentimes, like, value ourselves based on other people. Um, and I think... Uh, this is just a tremendous illustration that I think is very helpful um, regarding how we compare ourselves and God being good. So think about uh, and I think I've shared this before—but think about, like, if I took my two boys and I just, uh, you know, we just put them in that room and we just let them fight it out. You know, like, it would be a pretty good match. I'd, you know, put my money on one over the other, but— um, but it'd be a pretty good match. It'd, it'd be scrappy and hit and punch and throw chairs and, you know, a, a four- and a five-year-old just going at it, right? Um, apart from human decency, like, it'd be kind of fun, right? Um, not really, but, um, you know, what I mean, um, but, but what if, and so we're going to go, keep, keep going on that track of human de- not having human decency. So then what if I decided, well, I'm going to go against one of them? Right? So, like, um, 34-year-old man versus a 5-year-old, it would be awful. Right? It would be, like, I would destroy him. Right? Um, We have the tendency, as people, to view good based on this person, this person. Like, well, I just got to be better than Hitler. I just got to be better than ISIS. I just got to be better than my neighbor who keeps driving on my lawn. Like, like, how do I compare myself? And what Jesus is saying is that, like, it's like an adult fighting a five-year-old when it comes to, here's who God is, who's above and beyond Anybody and anything, there's no comparison with regards to who he is and what is good. But then Jesus brings up um, the commandments, which is interesting. If you would enter life, you must keep the commandments. So he brings up this, like we're familiar with the Ten Commandments, right? Um, which really are the, if you think about it, it's kind of the basis for human life, right? Like here's how you interact with God, here's how you interact with, with each other, with mankind. And, and Jesus comes and, and he, he sets these out as a realization that if you look later on, like in Romans 3.20, it says that these commandments reveal to us our sin. Right? We'll look at that in just a second. But, um, but when we look at the Ten Commandments, what we see is we're not good at all. Um, we're not good at all. And so this stronghold that this rich young ruler had was that salvation is by what I do. Like, it's how good I am. It's how hard I work. Um, he just thought he was such a good guy. This, this man-centered view of I can earn approval, I can earn my way to God. And Jesus is like, no. And apart from him changing that perspective, there's no way the gospel could change his heart. Like, that, was, that fortified his heart from being changed by the gospel as a view that he was really his own savior. Um, But probably the majority of us, I would say the majority of us believe that salvation is by Jesus. That our entrance into heaven isn't marked by what we do or what we don't do. Yet, I want to kind of press into this a little bit because I think that even as people who believe that salvation is by faith alone, um, there's still a tendency where we live in our own strength, right? We're still a tendency where we live out our own flesh, um, trying to conquer sin and defeat sin and kind of tackle life on our own. Um, I don't know about you, but I, I tend to think a ton about the, the cross um, and celebrate the cross, but forget the life of Christ. So when we think about the gospel, um, the gospel doesn't just isn't just depicted by, here's a, here's a man who died on a cross. The gospel's bigger than that because it's also a life lived in perfection leading up to his crucifixion. So, we've got to do something with that. that. That in the gospel, when, when we get Jesus by faith, what, what the Bible says we're getting isn't just his death, but there's actually a transaction that says... You get his perfect life. It's so like he pays the penalty for our sins. So he takes all my wretchedness upon himself and he gives to me his perfect life. That's called imputed righteousness. Here's a definition of imputed righteousness. To ascribe righteousness or guilt to someone by virtue of, of a similar quality in another. Okay, so let's think about this a second. Imputed Righteousness. The reason why I'm unpacking this is because if 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 we don't understand the concept of imputed righteousness, we lose the gospel. Okay, so let's think about for a second maybe what it's not. So imagine um, if if I owed like five million dollars, and and Jesus came along, and uh, and I I was like, "All, all I have is a million. All I have is a million dollars. That's all I can put towards it. And so Jesus is like, you know what? Uh, It's it's okay. Um, You've given a a million, and I'll I'll put forward the other four million, and there's your five million. You know, as if my faith is that million, and then Jesus comes with the other four million. And then that makes, like, the five million. Um, And that's not imputed righteousness. What imputed righteousness is is the fact that I I bring nothing to the table. I have nothing to give to Jesus. All my good deeds are as filthy rags before a holy God like an adult fighting a five-year-old. And so the reality is, is that when I come to God, what he has done, what he does in the gospel, is he, by grace alone through faith alone, says my perfect life is Marked on your account. I've paid in full, and I've given you my perfection. That's huge, because it changes, I think, the way that we think about how we live every day. Or it should. The more we press into that idea of, okay, God's right. Like, like I wake up this morning, it's like, this isn't, this isn't like how good I preach, or this isn't like how good of a dad I am, or um, how well I can navigate conversations, or like... It's the righteousness of Christ that makes me accepted, period. Not what I do. Um, Listen to this quote by John Bunyan, the writer of Pilgrim's Progress. This is really, really powerful. He says, Thy righteousness is in heaven, and methought withal, I saw with the eyes of my soul, Jesus Christ, at God's right hand. There I say, with my, was my righteousness... So that wherever I was or whatever I was doing, God could not say of me, He wants, in the sense of lacks, my righteousness, for that was just before Him. I also saw, moreover, that it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor yet my bad frame that made my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was Jesus Christ Himself, the same yesterday, today, and forever. So, where is it that, in in the sense of stronghold, that you believe or you cling to um, the idea that your acceptance comes by what you do? Um, Look at verse 17. And he said to him, Why do you ask me what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these things I've kept. What do I still lack? Um, I want to focus on that phrase, What do I still lack? Um, I think that the stronghold here for this guy is what I'll call like a, minim, a minimalistic view of Christianity, right? Like, like what's the? It's this like, what's the like least I can do? Like, what's the smallest amount like that that'll just get me in or just gain me access or make God to um, make me acceptable to God? This bare minimum. It's the attitude that says like, God, I've I've done enough for you. Like, what like what does he say here? Jesus says, he lists out these things, and he's, he's like, what does he say? He's like, nailed it. It's like, I've done this. All, like, all these things I've done, like, what, 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 what do I still need to do? Now, um, I mentioned the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are really this, the radical minimum standard. A lot of times we set up the Ten Commandments. You know, um, we—well, they're starting to take them down the walls in schools. But, like, um, they're up, and we view those as, like, man, this is our pursuit. And this is, like, you know, if if we could just not murder, not steal, or not commit adultery. Or, like, it's, like, this, like, goal. And Jesus comes along, and he says, actually, the Ten Commandments are really the the radical minimum standard of what it means to be a human being as he's designed human beings. Um— but in case you struggled with the fact that you, you're pretty good on the Ten Commandments, let me help you out. Um, so Jesus comes along, you know, because you, you're like, you shall not murder. It's like, well, I think I'm okay there. But Jesus comes along, we know this, right? And he says, what? If you have hate in your heart, it's worse than murder. You shouldn't commit adultery. Well, Jesus comes along, he just says, if you have lust in your heart, What? Committed adultery. You shouldn't steal. Well, I've never robbed a bank or, you know, held somebody up at gunpoint or um, stole money out of my mom's purse or... But all of us can think of situations where we were dishonest with our time, dishonest with our resources. What about bear false witness? I think there's probably been times where most of us have embellished The character of another spoke negatively of another, right? Um, Honor your father and mother. I don't think I need to talk about that one. Um, I think all of us can identify areas where we haven't done that. Love your neighbor as yourself. Um, Most of us, some of us don't really love ourselves well. um, And so in turn, we don't love our neighbor well. But here's the reality of what we're saying is that this guy was viewing these as like the bare minimum, like, what's the least I can do to be accepted by God, but yet live my life however I want? And Jesus is like, there's a problem with your thinking, right? Because what happened? Jesus, he pours out his life. He pours out everything that he is to rescue us, right? It's like, it's like the typical kid's response to a parent who's done everything, it's funny because like, those times I'll go back to my parents and I'll just be like, I just want to thank you for all that you did. Right? Because like, well, like, what do kids do? Like, you give them life. Right? Like, they don't come out like, hey, thanks mom. Like, nor should they um, necessarily. Um, but we get, you give them life. You give them food. You give them protection. You give them everything. And they poop on you and throw things at you and say mean things to you. And um, Jesus comes and what does he do? He gives us life. He gives us everything. He rescues us. We even do those things to him too. But yet he draws us closer like any good parent would. And he says, you're mine. This process of Christian maturity, even as we see in this text is us more and more becoming aware of all that Jesus has done for us in a way that changes how we respond and how we live. Not, not like in a sense that I, I want to gain acceptance, but in a sense that I'm already accepted, and this is how I want to live in re- response. Not in a, well, what's, what's the bare minimum I need to do? Or what's the least I need to do in order to be accepted because we're here, what does Romans 12, 2 say? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifice. Right? It goes on to talk about the, what Rick unpacked for three weeks, Romans 12, 2, about not being conformed. But what does it say? It says that our lives, my life, your life, if you're a child of God, if you're a Christian, is that you are a living sacrifice. It's like... How can I give my life, not just the minimum, not just the little bit, but how can I give my life all that I am because of what he's done for me? I think that's what Like, The more we see Christ as everything, the more we see how beautiful he is, the more we press into the life that he's called us to, and we run from these strongholds that say like, I think that if I can have some control, then I'll be more happy. It's a lie. It's a stronghold that keeps us from being transformed by God's ever-changing presence. Because he wants to change us all the time. Um, It's also viewing God, it's like gospel perks. You know, like friends with benefits, right? Yeah, I know Jesus. That's the struggle here for this This rich young ruler who said, well, well, like, haven't I done enough? Haven't I nailed it? Keep reading uh, verse 21. Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Man, what a, what, a, what a difficult conversation, right? Like, here's this rich guy. And why does Jesus come along and tell him, like, go sell everything you have? Because that's his God. Like, all of his possessions, all that he has, like, he believes this is where his value is, this is where his worth is, this was his stronghold that really kept him from knowing the power of Jesus. And Jesus is like, if you want to have treasure in heaven, if you want to have eternal life, you got to have me. Not this continual pursuit of, like, I need more. So there's this—his stronghold was really this discontented life, this, this quest for more. Rather than realizing, okay, this is who Jesus is. This is the life he's called me into to be in relationship with, with him. Possessions were his God. They were the thing that he ran to, the thing that he clung to. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm continually, continually pressed with this. Like we live in a community where everyone wants out. We live in a community where schools are declining. We live in a community where the housing market is not very good. We live in a community where there's violence. And what's the tendency? What's the tendency for every human being I gotta protect, protect myself, protect my own, protect my kids. Not to say that any of those things are ungodly in the sense of protection. They're just not the primary, first, initial thought. I don't believe. I think they're a response like like. So when Hazelwood says they're gonna gonna cut budget on all this stuff, um, I don't think the first thought of of a what I don't want my first thought to be is like this. I'm, I'm freaking out. Because I don't want my identity to be placed in those things. I don't want my identity to be placed in the security of my environment, believing that if I go somewhere else where maybe things are better circumstantially, that then I'm going to be better. This is not to, that's not to say that going somewhere else is sin. I just don't, I don't want you to hear that. But what I, wanna, I want you to hear, for like, for like you guys are here because you're like, I'm invested and I want to see change and I want to see the gospel planted here. And we have to combat those lies where our identity is placed in how nice of a house we have. Our identity is placed in how good of schools and the GPA my kid has. And like what kind of sports teams he's on or she's on or all of these materialistic, worldly. Listen, not that any of those things are in and of themselves wrong, right? Like we want to live in nice houses. We want to live in a nice community. We want to send our kids to good schools. We, we, want, we want those things. And those things aren't inherently sinful. Don't hear me saying that. But that's not where our identity is. And so we've got we to fight that. We've got to combat the idea that, that hope is across the river, maybe, or in another town, or where things are easier. And I just say this. I just love the small group of folks, all of you, that say, Gosh, I'm here. I'm going to serve. And I'm going to live. And I'm going to love. Until Jesus tells me not to. And that's amazing. That's amazing. It encourages my heart to press on when things are hard and when things are difficult and when things aren't necessarily going the way that we hope or want. Because what happens? What happens if in the midst of difficulty we bail? Do we see hope and do we see change in the difficulty? No. We lose the opportunity of seeing the power of God change us and change our situation. And, but, but let me just also say this, is that God's, God isn't always in the business of fixing. Sometimes God wants to leave things broken to show us he's enough and so in all of our efforts to reach our community like there's aspects where it's, it's going to be broken and it's, it's not just going to be fixed and everything's just going to be kumbaya and good to go but God's going to sustain and show us I'm God Not a good budget or a well functioning church or a well functioning community or housing market or all of those things. I am. I'm God. Go back to 23. So this guy is incredibly distraught because Jesus just said, Your hope and your stronghold is your stuff. And he says, Go sell everything you have because that's your God. And if you want to find eternal life, you've got to give up all your false gods and run to me as the one true God. And then here's what he says. And it's just profound, and I want you to, I'm not going to really talk about this much, but I want you to just hear it. Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. What is he saying? He's saying that the danger of riches will grab a person. And get them to run to those riches as their hope for life. And not see their need for Jesus. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So I could bring up a camel here. Could have brought a camel in. Probably would have had some issues with the snow not to mention bring a camel in church. Anyway, I could bring a camel up here and we could bring a, a needle um, and we could try to all figure out how could we get this thing through this needle and, you know, if we, like, turn the camel into liquid or, like, no, like, it's just, it's, it's not, sorry. It's not happening, right? Like, th- that's the amazing thing. So, like, is that situation hopeless for this rich young ruler? No, what does it say? With God all things are possible, which means God has the power to transform, where we're like, uh-uh. I'm not doing it, God. Have you ever done that? And God's like His kindness is the very thing that leads us to repent. He's not like He's not like the parent I am, like, oh, yeah, like yeah you are. He's like His kindness leads me to repentance. Because all things are possible with God. I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished. Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? So, like, like I love Peter because he's like, like, we gave up everything. Like, like, what do we get out of the deal? Legitimate question, right? And what does he say? Jesus said to them, True, I say to you in the next world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. I just, I just think it's interesting that he's like, he mentions the next world. Like, I don't know that i thought about that in any of my study or any of my prep up until this moment right now, that he mentions the next world to say that there will come a day when you will no longer sacrifice and pour out your life for me. Not to say that there's not hope and joy in in the midst of, of a life poured out and sacrificed for the Lord, but I just think it's interesting that he says, in the next world... The new world, when the Son of Man will sit on the glorious throne, you, will, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left house and brother and sister or father and mother or children or lands for my name's sake will inherit a hundredfold. Will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. I just love it. Jesus is like, trust me. Like, I, I got you. I got you. Like, I'm the giver of all good things. You don't have to worry that when you pour out your life for me, I'm just going to overlook it. When you're making sacrifices in my name for my kingdom, that I'm just going to overlook it and be like, oh, sorry, I, I missed that. I didn't see that. But he's like, I, I got you, especially in the next life. Definitely in this life, I'm going to take care of you. Trust me. Uh, Let's pray. God, thank you that you're a good God and that you love us. Forgive us where we cling to things as our fortress and as our stronghold that we believe will save us and we believe is our hope. I do it every day. And I pray that you would today somehow do the, with God, all things are possible thing that you do and set us free. I thank you that for any of us, the bondage that we're in, maybe we don't even realize we're in it, that you're a God who woos us and draws us, and I pray that just in these moments and in these days of 40 days of transformation that we'd see the gospel and that we would be changed even where we don't know we need to be changed. I thank you for your faithfulness. And I pray that you would do the work that you desire to do way more than the work that we desire you to do. And that we would never be the same. God, we praise you for your good.